talks on psychoanalysis, shares topics published in the IPA Society journals and Congress debates worldwide, brought to you in the voices of the original authors. We hope this window will allow you to experience the depth and breadth of psychoanalytic thought around the world. I am Gaetano Pellegrini and in this episode we listen to Dominique Scarfone on the concept and meaning of time in a fruitful intersection between psychoanalysis and artistic creativity. Freud and Winnicott have expressed the opinion that if their psychoanalytic ideas are correct, then poets and writers will have thought of them first. Dominique Scarfone, who has developed the concept of actual time on a metapsychological ground, concurs with their opinion by showing that variants of actual time can be found in the works of the American poet W.S. Merwin and the British writer Virginia Woolf and the German philosopher Walter Benjamin. Their poetry, literary prose and philosophy are shown to resonate with the time dimension of the psychoanalytic process. A first draft of this paper was presented at the spring meeting of the American Psychoanalytic Association in San Francisco in June 2015. This is a somewhat modified and shortened version of the paper by the same title published in Psychoanalytic Dialogues in 2016. Dominique Scarfone is a training and supervising analyst in the Canadian Psychoanalytic Society and Institute, Montreal French Branches, in the process of retiring from his practice of more than 40 years. A former full professor at the University of Montreal, he was for many years an associate editor of the International Journal of Psychoanalysis. He is presently chairing the executive committee of the International Journals College. Please visit the details of the episode to find the full bibliographic references and download the abridged text of the article. And to stay informed about the latest podcast releases, please sign up today. The time before us, the unpassed in the works of W.S. Merwin, Walter Benjamin and Virginia Woolf. The past is never dead. It's not even past, wrote William Faulkner. Time is probably one of the most elusive concepts, and this is no less true in psychoanalysis than in philosophy or modern physics. Time is also an element notoriously absent in the unconscious, according to Freud. Yet, one could argue that this is only true of one particular sort of time, that is, linear, chronological time, the time of the clock, whereas Freud himself has described more complex forms of time, especially Nechtreiglichkeit, or après coup, is a form of time that works unconsciously, either in organizing the mind or, on the contrary, in building up a trauma. The very term time is polysemic. When I say there is no time enough to read this paper, the word time has not the same meaning as when I ask what time is it? And is it and is even more distant from last June in San Francisco we had the time of our lives. 
the polysemy is probably a reflection of how pervasive the notion of time is in every aspect of human existence. And it is therefore surprising that time did not take greater prominence in psychoanalytic thinking, starting with Freud himself, who in the later part of his life expressed regrets for having neglected it. In what follows, I will be playing with another polysemic expression regarding time and which makes the title of this paper, The Time Before Us. The ambiguity here rests on the word before, since this preposition indicates there either a time that came before us or a time that stands before, that is, in front of us. The ambiguity is a productive one, I believe, for analysis aims precisely, in my view, at coming to terms with the sort of arrested or repetitive time that indeed stands before us, but in a paradoxical state. On the one hand, it seems to relate to something that came before us and should therefore belong to our past. Yet, that something is currently there, acting and impinging on our lives. I call it actual time as well, and I hold that the task of analysis is to transform actual time into a time really bygone, that is, a true past. I'll suggest in a moment that what our patients bring in analysis is not really their past. Actual time is the form of time that, contrary to Freud's timelessness, yet based on Freud's own theories, I contend is the time of the unconscious. It is the temporal form of the unconscious that is of psychic reality, inasmuch by this term we do not simply mean an imagined reality or a subjective version of external reality, but a reality as sturdy as, though different from, material reality. Though different in nature, material and psychic realities are indeed comparable in, term of, in terms of their effectiveness, Wirklichkeit in German, in impacting a subject's existence. Briefly stated, actual time is the time that is always now, as Pontalis would have it, it is a time that does not pass, which is why events and people, apparently bygone, are still actively intervening in the analysand's life. For this reason, I suggest that, contrary to appearances, in psychoanalysis we do not deal with the past, for if it was truly the past, then it would not have the kind of impact we observe on the lives of our patients. For what regards the unconscious, what, what we naively designate as the past, is in fact still active. It may seem dead, but still haunts the present and is commonly manifest in the repetition compulsion. In view of such repetition, it is not truly the present either, for the present necessarily flows towards the past, whereas this haunted present, which I also dubbed the unpast, 
does not by itself become history, nor does it keep a window open upon the future. Unconscious forms are active, but in a sterile, roundabout movement, which is clearly the mark of the repressed, that is, that which is not yet accessible in a usable, symbolic form. There are a number of metapsychological reasons for invoking actual time and the unpast, but I chose instead to try and give a more lively idea of the concept by tapping other sources. And here I take the risk of conjuring up support from literature and philosophy. I indeed agree with Freud, Winnicott and others that if our findings are correct, then poets will have said it first. My evidence will rest on works by the poet W.S. Merwin, by the philosopher Walter Benjamin and the writer Virginia Woolf, all famous in their own right, and who were probably not thinking of psychoanalysis when they wrote the excerpts I'm going to quote. I nevertheless submit these short pieces as evidence, for I believe that in our field there is no reason to give them less credit than other disciplines give, say, to quantitative measuring. So let me start with a poem by Merwin. It's called The New Song. For some time, I thought there was time, and that there would always be time for what I had a mind to do, and what I could imagine going back to and finding it as I had found it the first time. But by this time, I do not know what I thought when I thought back then. There is no time, yet it grows less. There is the sound of rain at night, arriving unknown in the leaves, once, without before or after. Then I hear the thrush waking at daybreak, singing the new song. Speaking of ambiguity, Merwin makes use of it right from the first verse. For some time, that is duration, I thought there was time. Does he mean time enough or is he asking about the very existence of time? In the poet's ambiguity, I suggest it is not only this is not only his prerogative, but teaches us a beautiful lesson about time and its place in human experience. Among its many remarkable features, there is the fact that while the first strophe of the poem shows us some of the many possible meanings of the word time, in the first verse of the second strophe, the poet bluntly declares, there is no time. And then he surprises us again by immediately adding, yet it grows less. Hence, in the first half of the poem, the poet examines what we could call the imaginary forms of time, a time that is and will always be there in the form of a timeline, which one can travel forwards with projects or backwards, hoping to recapture past objects. But then, in the second strophe, Merwin proceeds to a critical examination of those common conceptions of time. 
the most assertive heading, there is no time, forces us into adopting a new, if uncertain, point of view. Obviously, the poet is not naive to the point of simply dismissing all forms of time. Like all of us, like every mortal, he just cannot eliminate the notion of time completely, however difficult it is to grasp in its essence. So, as blunt as it may seem, the first verse of the second strophe offers, in fact, a sort of compromise. There is no time, yet it grows less. This yet is grow it grows less can be seen as the admission that there must be some form of time, a form associated to a special experience that the poet will now present to us, a particular reality he does not call time, but which must have some relation to the common idea of time that was time and again invoked in the first part. This lesser form of time is elaborated in the following verses. There is the sound of rain at night, arriving unknown in the leaves, once without before or after. The extraordinary, the extraordinary power of these three lines is that after having examined the idea of time in the first half of the poem, the poet has now opted for a different strategy. Indeed, here Merwin is not describing anything. He is making the reader experience the strange thing for which the word time is not really appropriate anymore, even if it somehow refers to whatever it is that bears that name. He takes us un into another dimension. Merwin does not speak of this special sort of time. He makes us feel this sort of time in a very vivid way. We have left the realm of representation and are now entering the realm of presentation. And this becomes very conspicuous in the last of the three lines I just quoted. When read aloud, the verse once without before or after, indeed forces us to pronounce the once as an isolated utterance. The rhythm that imposes itself underscores the single word once, which the poet immediately explains of sorts as meaning without before or after. So here form tightly espouses content. The sudden arrival of the rain at night is, I believe, something that puts the author and the reader in the depth of what is not present because, as already mentioned, the present necessarily flows towards the past, but is, and is continually, continuously transformed into the past. The present is by definition flanked by a before and an after whereas the rain is said here to arrive once, without, before and after. It therefore cannot be the present, it must be something else. The very pause in our breath breathing that is commanded by the structure of the verse, the isolated once 
suggests that Merwin is referring to something like arrested time. And this is to me of the highest interest since it captures exactly what I've been trying to isolate as actual time, the time of what cannot yet be represented. One could object here that as Merwin refers to the rain arriving unknown in the leaves, there is in fact a representation of at work in his poem. And the answer is obviously yes. But I am referring here not to the images conveyed by the poem, as this is the imaginary part I was alluding to earlier, but to the experience provided by reading the poem through its structure and rhythm. Once the apparent contradictions in the verses have shaken our ordinary belief in time, we are given a final blow with the solitary once that has no before or after, a blow that could be traumatic, but which, poetry being what it is, prepares us instead to hear a new song. There is more. The very structure of the poem is similar to that of the analytic process. In analysis, indeed, the analysand starts by narrating a story, browsing and shuffling, so to speak, through his memory, giving us various accounts of his life history. But as the analysis goes on, something is secretly building up that will one day take us into another dimension, when the intensity of the transference has become such that no narrative can do it justice anymore. The patient is not narrating now, not remembering anymore. He, she is repeating. He, she does not look for meaning as he, she used to, but is after the proverbial pound of flesh. In such circumstances, the analysis often seems to have come to a halt. The sessions may now appear as sterile encounters where what we get is just more of the same. The past narratives are devalued as something that is known but of no use in regard of the needs and urges that are now at the forefront. Future perspectives are out of sight. There may be surprising outbursts of unspeakable affect or sudden reversals in the relational atmosphere. The analytic diet, too, is then confronted with something that seems to come out of the blue without before or after. This, I believe, corresponds to what could be called the second layer of transference. That is, not the transference where we witness the reenactment of what was possibly knowable and already formulated, but the unprecedented enactment of what belonged not truly to the psychical domain, but, but to a primordial layer of the mind. There, what is registered are not representations, but mere traces of unspeakable experience. These need to be presented again, re-presented, as it were, in the transference, in order to be transferred into the psychic domain and therefore elaborated 
and worked through. The arrested time in Werner's poem is a prelude to a positive outcome where the singular experience of the now, without, before or after, is not only celebrated for its aesthetic value, but opens up the possibility of a new relationship to the surrounding world. I cite the poem again. Then I hear the thrush waking at daybreak, singing the new song. Fresh, untainted, bare perception is now possible after having cleansed the mind, so to speak, of the old and illusory representations of time. A new song is heard as if the world was at its beginnings. The expression at daybreak clearly suggests that we are invited to a new world, cracking the shell of arrested time and opening a new cycle where probably we shall again fall into the illusion of time passing until, that is, a critical examination shall be needed again. In analysis, too, we can hope for and eventually experience a similar daybreak, but the arrested time before this outcome is felt the arrested time before this outcome is felt more like a quagmire and the analyst is sometimes brought to experience doubt, if not discouragement, about the possibility of getting out of what resembles a psychical sandpit. It is, it is useful in those moments to remember that the situation is not as desperate as it seems. It is in fact during moments such as those where the process seems to have come to a halt, that dramatic changes can occur. For all the apparent sterility of the situation, the analysand is indeed now confronted with his demons in presentia, as Freud would say, and not through mere narratives. The actual psychic reality that has been building up now takes over, and the apparent stalemate demands new words, new attitudes to be found by which a breakthrough may obtain. Obviously, this is not a one-time occurrence. Every breakthrough, big or small, need to be worked through. But I suggest that regardless of the many anecdotal forms that the process can espouse, a general principle attains. Dealing with actual or arrested time often heralds change in analysis. Through the confrontation with actual time, the unpassed can be caught in the act, as it were, and carried over into the present and thus given a chance to start flowing again into the past. Interestingly enough, this is precisely how Walter Benjamin conceived of, of the historical process and of thinking itself. In his thesis on the philosophy of history, he wrote the following. A historical materialist cannot do without the notion of a present, which is not a transition, but in which time stands still and has come to a stop. End of quote. 
And to the possible objection that this may well be true of historical time, but has little to do with time in the individual psyche, Benjamin has this to say, quote, thinking involves not only the flow of thoughts, but their arrest as well. Where thinking suddenly stops in a configuration pregnant with tensions, it gives that configuration a shock by which it crystallizes into a monad. A historical materialist approaches a historical subject only where he encounters it as a monad. In this structure, he recognizes the sign of a messianic cessation of happening, or, put differently, a revolutionary chance in the fight for the oppressed past. End of quote. I leave aside Benjamin's reference to the messianic to concentrate on the time structure he describes and which parallels nicely the one in Merwin's poem. The experience of arrested thinking is clearly, clearly redolent of the once, without, before or after, as well as of the experience in analysis when the narrative seems to have been voided of its substance. The coming to the fore of arrested time, the actual experience of it in a given situation, be it historical, poetic or psychoanalytic, does not entail that the process has come to a full stop. It rather signals an imminent major shift. In Merwin, it preceded the chance to hear the thrush singing at daybreak the new song. In Benjamin, it is the sign of a revolutionary chance, and I have suggested that in analysis it heralds a significant turn. But going back to Benjamin's arrested time, let me stress that it is not empty time, it is rather a different time. I quote, history is the subject of a structure whose site is not homogeneous, empty time, but time filled by the presence of the now, Jetztzeit. In a footnote, the editor, who is presumably Anna Arendt, explains that Benjamin's now, or Jetztzeit, is not the present, and that Benjamin is rather referring to the Latin nunc stans, now standing. Jetztzeit, therefore, fits quite exactly with what I refer to as actual time in analysis. This now time, Jetztzeit, is not the present and cannot therefore become the past, at least not until it has been brought into the open and its potentialities actualized as it happens in the course of analysis. Indeed, the analytic process is also not structured as a homogeneous empty time, nor populated by linear chronological events. It rather contains knots and nuggets, vicious circles and repetitions, drastic turns, stochastic events, all pointing to the loci of major resistance that are given the time 
to present and represent themselves one by one in the realm of transference. Through the experience of transference and the elaborative work it requires, what presents itself is a repetition. It therefore re-presents itself or presents itself again and thereby opens the gates to representation. And what is representation if not the possibility of evoking the past as past? That is, the capacity of adopting the stance of a subject with regard to what was there rather with regard to what was there rather than being subjected to its vicious cycles of repetition. We have thus reasons to state that the general goal of psychoanalysis is to transform actual time into the past, that is, to generate a true past, in spite of his extensive use of topographical models and spatial metaphors, Freud was himself from early on well aware of the central role of time in psychoanalysis. And still in 1933, he wrote, wishful impulses which have never passed beyond the id, but impressions too which have been sunk into the id by repression are virtually immortal. After the passage of the cades, they behave as though they had just occurred. End of quote. So I suggest that they are not yet past. And Freud seems to concur with the next phrase of the same paragraph. Quote, they can only be recognized as belonging to the past, can only lose their importance and be deprived of their catexis of energy when they have been made conscious by the work of analysis. And it is on this that the therapeutic effect of analytic treatment rests to no small extent. End of quote. Thus, for the repressed elements being finally recognized as belonging to the past amounts to losing their pathogenic importance and acquiring a new elaborative role in the psyche of the subject. The true past, indeed, is not a scrapbook, let alone a scrapyard, but a most precious possession. It is not something dead and useless, but a treasure of references that nourish the present and help prepare for future events. The past is us. So our relation to the past is in fact an important index of our relation to our own being. It is vital for inhabiting our body and our world in a meaningful manner. Our past is constantly remodeled by our present experience. It can be a source of remembering, but also requires for its remodeling the work of oblivion. Repression, dissociation, or other unsymbolized states are not oblivion. They rather preserve things which re-emerge in the transference. For oblivion to happen, one must be able to elaborate what is actual, bring it on the analytic scene, and work it through, thus differentiating it, 
sculpting it into the past, present and future. Such elaboration is, among other things, the coming together of experience and speech. For the actual is unconscious inasmuch it cannot be articulated and therefore remains captive of the infantia, that is, of infancy, if by that word we mean the inability to speak. The infantile, indeed, is central to psychoanalysis, not only as a time where personal history and the structuring of personality begin, but most importantly, as a time where what is experienced cannot be spoken, but can only be registered, requiring in the apriku the subject's efforts at translation, interpretation, and finally, a measure of meshing into a network he or she will refer to as the past. The actual is therefore also the infantile, that part of the encounter with the other which remains unspeakable and which for that reason is always, albeit minimally, traumatic. And what is traumatic is insufficiently elaborated, cannot be forgotten. This unforgettable and yet unremembered something is the primarily repressed, the actual which presses for its return, for coming out in the open. It does so in action, that is, for what regards analysis, in the transference. As words are finally woven into the fabric of the actual, a time sequence is then born, a perspective, and therefore, a past. The present is not arrested time anymore, but the locus of a passage. The past, then, is the end result of a process devoted to the construction of meaning, to the enrichment of the experience of being alive. And this I could not describe better than in the words of Virginia Woolf. Let me quote from Moments of Being. The past only comes back when the present runs so smoothly that it is like the sliding surface of a deep river. Then one sees through the surface into the depths. In those moments, I find one of my greatest satisfactions, not that I am thinking of the past, but that it is then that I am living most fully in the present. For the present, when backed by the past, is a thousand times deeper than the present when it presses so close that you can feel nothing else. But to feel the present sliding over the depths of the past, peace is necessary. End of quote. The essential relationship that in Wolf's words the present must entertain with the past, highlights by contrast what I see as a false present. I mean the one that, in her words, presses so close that you can feel nothing else. End of quote. It is in the same present that, in Merwin's words, is without before or after, hence not really a present, but a now time, in Benjamin's words. 
I call it actual time or the unpassed. Woof doesn't openly describe this disconnected present as a precursor of some imminent turn of events, but this is implicit in the last sentence of the quote. On the one hand, it must be mentioned that like Benjamin, Woof too had a place for the role of shock in summoning creativity. On the other hand, she implies that a true present is one that she says can be felt, quote, sliding over the depths of the past, end of quote, and for which, quote, peace is necessary, end of quote. And what can provide the peace so necessary, if not a decisive turn of events, allowing for the transformation and psychic elaboration of the actual and constant source of excitation that is the unspeakable, also known as the infantile. Thank you for your attention.